But I hope, uh, I hope everyone here had a wonderful Thanksgiving, as different as it probably was this year from other years. And it's my hope that this morning nobody had leftover turkey for breakfast. One, that's gross. Turkey and breakfast don't work. Maybe for some of you to do, whatever. Uh, and two, I just don't want anyone dozing off. I don't want to be working against tryptophan this morning, okay? And I also want to let you guys know, because I know this is more important to everyone here than anything else, there will be Seinfeld references, okay? That gets applause. I, I've never heard so many times after the last time I preached, so many people, you know, there was no Seinfeld. There was no Seinfeld. What was that? I mean, Pastor Lou said it from the pulpit, there was no Seinfeld. So we got Seinfeld. No need to get upset. Anyway, we're in a portion of Philippians this morning that is going to seem like just a couple of housekeeping items. Um, But what this section actually is, is a really fitting conclusion um, to all that Paul has been talking about uh, the last few weeks and the last few portions of this letter. So if you have your Bibles, open to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be finishing up that chapter in verses 19 through 30. I just want you to get there before we actually read it. I want to look a little bit again at the context, a little recap to bring us up to speed to this point of the letter. I'm not going to go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 1, but I at least want to go back to verse 27. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And if you remember, when we looked at this text, when we studied it, Paul was instructing them that that they're to live as good citizens of heaven here on earth. And as citizens, they stand together as one entity, side by side, for the cause of the gospel. And the uh, pastor who talked of soldiers standing side by side with their shields overlapping together as this impenetrable wall of armor. And Paul continues this thought down into chapter 2 as he goes further into what living lives worthy of the gospel looks like. And we looked at chapter 2, verses 1 and 11. And he wants them to be of that same mind and have the same love. He instructs them to put others' needs above their own, doing nothing out of selfishness or conceit. And what it comes down to is living out the gospel, and he points them directly to Christ, the one who humbled himself in perfection and shows us that humility as he left the glories of heaven, took on flesh, and gave his life on the cross in obedience to the Father. And after Paul relishes in the beauty of Christ and all that he has done, Paul continues in his exhortation by telling the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And if you remember, what he's not saying there is he's not saying work for your salvation with fear and trembling. No, he's saying work it out. You already have it. It's secure in Christ. Work it out. Live it out. It's their sanctification. This idea of walking the opposite direction. Walking a different path. And we do that in the power of the Spirit. As the Spirit of God is working in us. We respond actively by living in a way that reflects that 
inward work of the Spirit. He gives us the, God gives us the energy, gives us the power to do it. And as we're living as worthy citizens, putting on the mind of Christ, working at our salvation, Paul tells them to do it without grumbling, without disputing. He's telling the Philippians to act like children of God who have experienced new life. Live it out. Don't allow the light of their witness to the world to be dimmed by grumbling and disputes. And the end result for him and for the Philippians would be that they would rejoice in living in that way. They would rejoice, that he would rejoice in them living out the gospel and they would rejoice in the joy of being able to do that. And that's where we left off last week. And that brings us to our text this morning. So let's read it together before we break it down. We're, again, verse 19. Paul writing, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I too may be cheered by news from you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to, uh, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself, myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So Paul, he's giving the Philippians some, some housekeeping items, but they're not just housekeeping items. He, he's using this as a, as a means for moving from exhortation to example. Because commonly, these little itinerary pieces, they'd be tacked on at the end of a letter. Paul gets through everything he wants to say, and then he tells them, so-and-so's coming, so-and-so's doing this. He gives them a little update. But here he plants it right in the middle, and it's not by accident. Everything we've seen from chapter 127 to 218 have been exhortations to live with gospel character. And this morning, we're going to look at gospel character exemplified And we'll see these three things exemplified in three ways. Examples of gospel care, examples of gospel camaraderie, and examples of gospel centrality. And I'm I'm not exactly going to go verse by verse in precise order as we typically would. Uh, I am going to bounce around a bit and look how how Timothy exemplifies the one and Epaphroditus does, and then we'll move to the next one. And so we're going to jump around a little bit. It makes sense in my head. Hope it comes out in a way that makes sense and that you can follow along. I will do my best to have the correct scriptures on the screen that I'm talking about so we can all follow along and um, that we may find encouragement from these, these men. So let's first look at examples of gospel care. And Paul begins this section of his letter with the phrase, I hope 
in the Lord Jesus. This is the equivalent of something like saying, like, Lord willing. If all goes well and the Lord permits it, I hope to send Timothy your way. Some people uh, like to use the Latin phrase, Deo valenti, which essentially means God willing if nothing prevents it. That's what Paul's saying here. He uses this language in a few of his letters because he recognizes the sovereign hand of God in all of life. He wants to send Timothy, but God willing, he'll be able to. There's a lot resting in the balance in Rome for Paul with being on trial for his execution, being in his imprisonment. He's aware of his current lot of life. And he may not come out on the positive side of things. So if the present circumstances in life allow it, he's going to send Timothy. He hopes to send him just as soon as he sees how well, how well it goes with himself. Uh, and he tells him in verse uh, 23, I don't have that up on the screen, but that he hopes it himself to actually be able to come also. And if Timothy comes to Philippi, that means things are going well for Paul. And if things are going well for Paul, then hopefully he'll be able to come as well. So he kind of gives him that little bit of encouragement there. He wants to be cheered either in person or by word of Timothy that the church is doing well. He wants to see the living as worthy citizens and that the gospel advancement is occurring in Philippi. So that's his hope in sending Timothy. But though Paul wants to encourage the church and be encouraged by the church, we can see why Paul would want such a person as Timothy with him as long as possible. That's why he's not just saying, I'm sending you Timothy. I'm just going to send him. No, he's like, I need to see what's going to happen with me because I need Timothy. And this is where we see this example of gospel care. Because Paul says he has no one else like him. He has no one who cares the way that Timothy cares. He has no one who's as in line with him and his desires as Timothy has. It's unmatched. Right? That's what he says. For I have no one like him, verse 20, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's why Paul would want to hold on to him. He, see, he knows there's no one like Timothy who would care for you, Philippians. And that's, that's how he cares for me, and I'm going to hold on to him as long as I can. Timothy's not just the kind of guy who would just show up to a church because, like, well, Paul told me to be here. I guess I'm here. How are you guys doing? You doing fine? Okay, fine. I'm going back to Rome. Like, that's not, that's not Timothy. He would genuinely care for the church. He would be concerned for their well-being. Timothy was there when this church was birthed in Acts chapter 16. He's not unfamiliar with the people. He's not unfamiliar with their struggles. If he went, he would want it to be to their benefit. He would have them in mind. He wouldn't be putting on a show. And that's, that's the issue Paul was having with the people in Rome, right? We keep seeing it pop up. And we see it here again. He's talking about these believers who are just seeking their own interests and not the interests of Jesus Christ. They do what is best for themselves, not necessarily what's best for the kingdom of God. They look out for numero uno first and foremost. Not unlike this video clip that we will watch right now. And you guys can cue it up whenever you're ready.
Timothy is not George Costanza. He's not pushing the lady with a walker out of the way so he can get to the door. He wants, Timothy would be the person who looks out for their best interest. Timothy has been transformed by Christ. He's a person who lives out his faith. He is one who indeed lives as a worthy citizen of God's kingdom. And he's genuinely concerned for his brothers and sisters in Christ. The selfishness that Paul saw around him was was not unlike the world that we live in today. It's very easy for us to put ourselves first and others second. I gotta look out for me before I can worry about anybody else. It's not even second nature to us. It's like first nature. But the only remedy for this sinful problem is, you guessed it, the gospel. What's the problem the selfish people in Rome had? They were seeking their own interests and not those of Christ. So how do we combat selfishness and grow in our care and love for others? We immerse ourselves in the gospel. When we, when we look deeply at who Christ is and what he's done, we see his interests. And those interests should become our interests. Just a few examples of things Christ is interested in. One, bringing glory to God the Father. That's something that was that is important to Christ. Christ's desire was to glorify his Father in heaven, even when that meant laying down his life. We saw that earlier in chapter 2. But when we worry about our own selfish interests, we seek our interests by putting our glory first. We want God's glory to be on the forefront of our minds. Christ is also interested in saving lost people. Why did Jesus descend from heaven? As some kind of social experiment with mankind? As a case study of sorts? No. Jesus came to seek and save lost sinners. To give his life as a ransom for many so that those who would believe would not suffer eternal death but receive life. That they would no longer be lost but would be found. But when we seek our own self-interest, we don't really care about lost people and what happens because that doesn't affect me. As long as I'm good, well, that's fine. That's not having the interest of Christ. The gospel promotes in us a care for lost people. Christ is also interested in the growth and the care of found people. Colossians 3.16 said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And although that's Paul talking... He's saying this as a result, the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. And the response with the dwelling of the word of Christ is to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. That we would help one another grow. That as we grow in our relationship with Christ, we in turn would do that for others. Jesus himself says in John 13, Love one another as he has loved us. How did Jesus care for us? By putting our interests before his own. By loving sacrificially. So we need to look out for other people. People will know we are his disciples by our love for one another. Those seeking their own interests don't care about each other's growth. They don't. They just want to make sure they're the best. They look out for themselves. 
the the ball hogs on the basketball team. Like, well, I don't care how good you guys are. As long as I get my triple-double, I'm good. Points, assists, rebounds in the double digits. Triple-double. Okay. They're not worried about loving people. but They just want to make sure they're loved. That's their, their interest. If we are to have the interests of Christ, we will be interested in glorifying God above all else. We will be interested in seeing lost people be saved by the power of the gospel. And we will be interested in seeing to it that our fellow believers are fed, loved, and cared for. Those are qualities that we see in Timothy. That's what Paul saw in Timothy. Did he execute him perfectly? Well, there's no way he did, because he, just like us, is a a sinfully fallen human being. And we're not here to worship Timothy, but we're learning from his example. If Paul is boasting in the character of Timothy, there's something for us to observe. Because Timothy's example is derived from his living out the gospel, and his example is derived from Christ's. We want to have the interest of Christ in mind. We also see an example of caring for other people um, in the other person that Paul mentions. We're going to skip down to verse 26. Epaphroditus. He is the one who Paul is definitely sending back to them. Like, he's going to be on his way. And it says that Epaphroditus had a longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Epaphroditus had the Philippian church on his mind as he's working through an illness, an illness that that Paul says nearly killed him. He's thinking about the Philippians. He's longing for his home church where he came from. He's homesick. The Philippians had sent Epaphroditus as a messenger to Paul in his imprisonment. Most likely with with money. It was probably meant to really be a, a small visit and then he heads back. But he ends up prolonging his time there because he does get sick. And, and we see, and we'll look at in our next point, the impact that he must have had on Paul with the way Paul speaks of him. And he, he, he refers to him as a minister to his needs. So this guy comes, gets sick, nearly dies, and is ministering to Paul's needs and his imprisonment. There's a gospel care that this Epaphroditus exhibits. And as he's sick, he's longing for other people. He's worried about other people. Oh, they must be worried sick. They think I'm dead. I got to get back to them. I don't want them to think I'm dead. I want them to be at peace. I don't want them to worry. I juxtapose that with us for a second. We get a common cold. Nobody else matters. I'm going to die. I'm never going to breathe through my nose again. My head is pounding. He's nearly dying. He's worried about the other people. And maybe I'm being a little dramatic. Well, we can be a little dramatic. But imagine you're going through something tough, life-threatening. Where would, where would our focus be? I'd probably be concerned with myself. That's, if I'm just, just going to look in the mirror and be honest, I'd probably worry, what, well, what have I achieved? What, what can I still do before time's up? He's longing for his home church. He's, he's concerned for them. He wants them to be comforted. He wants them to know he's well. So he comes away from this illness. He's like, I gotta let them know. I'm, I, I care about them. 
He cares about others. I remember when, uh, when, when Paul listed all of his sufferings, at the end of that list, Paul says, and, and with all these things, I still I have this anxiety for the churches. Paul, Paul was anxious for the churches, and that similar burden and care for others overflowed into Epaphroditus. He's, he worries about his home church because they're his family. He, he cares about whether they are saddened by him or not. He's not only worried about himself. When others look at us, would they say we, we care for others? Would they say that we love others? Do our actions communicate that our interests are Christ's interests? Gospel care is our first example of gospel character. Second, we see examples of gospel camaraderie. We're going to hop back to Timothy. Verse 22. See, if we are to exhibit gospel character and grow in gospel character, that means we need gospel camaraderie. We, meaning meaningful, tight-knit, deep relationships with other believers. The Christian life is not a solo mission. We see this exemplified in Paul's relationships with both Timothy and Epaphroditus. Verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. You can actually see how proud Paul is to serve with Timothy. Look at this first phrase, but you know Timothy's proven worth. Paul's affirming Timothy's character, his value to the mission of the gospel. This phrase, proven worth, would be like someone affirming the, the genuineness of a, of a metal, uh, like a precious metal, um, or, or something valuable. Or in the case of Seinfeld, knowing whether the cigar was rolled by real Cubans or whether it was Dominicans. They roll them too tight. That's two, that's two references, whether you got them or not. Are you pleased? I'm looking out for your interests, not mine. Application immediately. But in all seriousness, something, uh, he, he's valuing Timothy like, like a coin or something valuable. It's, it, that, that value is tested by an expert when you, when you want to make sure something's authentic. Who better than Paul to say, Timothy's the real deal. You know his proven worth. His character has been tested. It has been observed by Paul. Philippians know this. They know Paul. They know Timothy. They know his value. They know his worth. But the sincerity of Paul's vouching for Timothy is seen not only in him just saying, you know his worth, but it's seen as his description of their relationship. How a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. It's hard to get more of a close relationship descriptor than that. When Paul writes to Timothy in, in his epistles to Timothy, he, he calls him his true child in the faith. This image of a father and a son displays for us clearly just how close they were. He's essentially raised Timothy in the Lord from conversion till now. He's watched him grow. He's seen him be challenged. He's corrected him. They've probably shared laughs and tears we know they've shared a jail cell. There's this connection that goes deep below the surface. And there's probably no one Paul is closer to 
than Timothy, the father to his son. And it really shows his love for the Philippian church that he'd be willing at all to part with him. That he would be able to send his son and the faith to them. That's having the interest of Christ and his kingdom in mind. That he's willing to like, this is, the, this is my boy. Hopefully I can send him your way. He knows Timothy's worth. And he's willing, when the time is right, to send him that his value could be used to bless them. We all need to have at least one person in our lives who is like that father in the faith like Paul or mother in the faith if you're a woman. We need to have those spiritually mature mentor figures in our life who, um, who can really speak wisdom to us out of experience in walking with the Lord. I know most of us probably think, oh, we can just do this on our own. We're Americans. We can do it. No, we can't. We need mature believers to speak to our lives in a way that gets beneath the surface so we can grow in our faith and one day be that kind of person for someone else growing in their, their faith. We should have someone who knows us well enough that they can speak to our faults, that they can help us to correct them and grow in them, that we can look more like Christ. We can't have that kind of relationship with everyone. That's, that's too much. But we should at least have a person in our life that can be that Paul figure if we are like Timothy. Or um, we could be that Paul to some other Timothy. And I like this illustration of a father to the son, this whole parental thing, because a good parent should be able to see the tendencies and flaws in their children that others may overlook. Like you guys may think Lily is like super cute all the time. <laughs> nope. Also, a good parent sees the potential and giftedness in their children that others may miss. A good parent should strive to correct the flaws and nurture the strength so they can blossom. That's the picture I see painted here when Paul refers to Timothy as his child. And we need people like that in our lives. For some of you, it might be literal father or mother. You might have that relationship. For some, it's someone who's just more mature in their faith that you could develop that bond with. Maybe that's a community group leader. Everyone has, comes from different walks of life and has different relationships. I know, for me, my mentors and figures have changed with each season of life I've been into, whether it's been just because uh, of location or, or whatever, um, there's not, it's not like I've had one person forever, like this is your mentor in the faith. You're stuck with them forever. If they die, well, you're on your own. It's not that kind of case. Um, when I was a student in high school, you know, I tried to cling to my, my youth pastor and, and spend time and, and, and ask questions, and we went to breakfast at way too early for a high schooler to ever be out having breakfast but I wanted to do it before school. Um, and I was able to, to glean what I could from him. And then when I went to school, well, when I came back from school, he was not there anymore. Um, and when I was in school, uh, there was the, the youth pastor I served under as a youth leader. And I would just spend time with him and 
and soak in whatever I could. And then when school was done, well, I'm not in Pennsylvania anymore. My relationship with him is kind of distanced just by nature of life. He's got other college students. Um, and now I'm, I'm here at King's Chapel, and, and that kind of person in my life is Pastor Lou. We've been serving together for nearly a decade now, which is unbelievable. <laughs> in a good way. It's, it is in a good way, but it's really strange that I've been here for almost, not quite, 10 years, a, little, a couple years to go. But, but we have that relationship. He, he knows me, whether it's good or bad for him, probably better than anyone in this building does, um, besides my my wife, she's not in this building, so it doesn't apply, but uh, he knows my faults, he knows my tendencies, uh, he can speak into my life. We have that kind of relationship. He's been walking with the Lord much longer. I have much to learn, and he pours into me in that way. We need people in our lives like that. And it's not like we can just say, all right, fine, I'm going to find a mentor. You, mentor, let's go. Like, it does take time. It does take work. It does take consistency in actually being in each other's lives. So I'm going to tell you right now, if you just come here on Sunday morning, sit in the seat, go home, and then we don't see anyone till next Sunday, you're never going to have a relationship like that. It's not going to happen. It cannot happen just by showing up to church, singing songs, hearing the teaching, going home, forgetting about it until next week when we get up and do the same exact thing. We need to be in community with people in each other's lives. It has to happen. That's how, that's how Timothy and Paul had this bond. It's life on life. It's walking with each other. We need those relationships. Gospel character will be developed when mature Christians pour into new believers and walk with them to maturity. It's gospel camaraderie at its finest. And we see Paul also had another connection and relationship with Epaphroditus. Verse 25, Paul refers to him in three ways. He says, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Though maybe not the same as calling him his son, they're still very important and reveal this closeness of the relationship. So I want to quickly look at each one of these. He calls him his brother. See, Paul begins with this list of attributes with, I think, the most important of the three. His familial relationship under the blood of Christ. My brother. Before he's a worker, before he's a soldier, he's a brother in Christ. He's a part of Paul's spiritual family. That shows a certain level of affection that Paul has for Epaphroditus. He's my brother in the Lord. He's not just, uh, and I'm sending you Epaphroditus. He's a brother in the Lord. Like, I'm going to acknowledge it, but he's my brother. He's, there's, this, there's this connection he has with him here. He personalizes it in a, in a way that shows us the importance that Epaphroditus had to him. This is the bond that, that all believers in Christ share. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. So Epaphroditus is his brother. He's his fellow worker. 
Epaphroditus wasn't just some underling of, of Paul's. He was a worker with Paul, alongside Paul. He came as a messenger. That didn't mean he was beneath Paul like Epaphroditus, this messenger, this man who carries messages. No, he's a fellow worker alongside equal playing field with the apostle Paul. Not in apostolic authority, but in value to the mission of the gospel. Paul values him. His role may look different than Paul's, but he's still a fellow worker with him. And the same, the same goes for us. Like we're, We all are a part of the church, and our, and our gifting and abilities are different. right? Not, not everyone's called to be pastors and teachers. We all have different gifts and talents. We're all fellow workers for the sake of the gospel and its advancement. Because we're both, we're all working to the same goal of seeing the gospel go forth. Epaphroditus, he's, he's Paul's brother. He's his fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. This harkens back to the common illustration that Paul uses when he describes the church. We, we sang about it in the first song, O Church Arise, right? Um, he's a fellow soldier, and Paul is constantly equating the church to, the, to other soldiers. Epaphroditus is, is one of those guys next to Paul, his shield locking with Paul's. Paul has Epaphroditus' back, vice versa. They're in this thing together, fighting the same fight, looking to achieve the same goal, striving to complete the same mission. They're in the trenches together, fighting the good fight of faith. Paul's leaning on someone like Epaphroditus in a time of great need in his life. It's his fellow soldier, worker, his brother. Epaphroditus was sent as a messenger to Paul, but Paul ends up saying that he has actually become a minister to my need. We don't have all the details. It's probably all conjecture at this point. But in that time, as he comes out of his illness, somehow he, while probably being ministered to by by doctors and everything else, whatever the case was back then, he ministers to Paul. This messenger comes and connects with Paul in such a way that there's now this gospel camaraderie. He was a minister to my soul. And man, he's a brother. He's my fellow worker. He's a soldier. You can see the, the character of both of these men and how they just exemplify that in, in their, their camaraderie with, with Paul. You can see how Paul, why Paul has, has locked onto to both of them and why they have a significance. They both brought a level of encouragement to Paul. You can tell that they played an important role in his life. And I can't say it enough. We need close gospel friendships. We need them. We need friendships and relationships with people who aren't believers as well, but we need the gospel friendships to help us stay on mission. We need people who can serve as our spiritual parents and mentors. We need people who will have our back alongside us in the battle. Again, I ask you, do you have someone like Paul did a Timothy or Paul did an Epaphroditus? Are you aligning yourself with other brothers and sisters who are, by God's grace, seeking the interests of Christ? 
Do you see the value in these things? Gospel camaraderie will help us to grow in gospel character. Will help us to grow so that we can live as worthy citizens. And before we get to our last part, I think it's important to look at the tough reality of close gospel relationships. Look at what Paul says. Um, oh, I, I have it here. It's under the wrong heading, but it's fine. Look what Paul says regarding Epaphroditus' illness and potential death. Verse 27. He says, Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me, also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Whatever Epaphroditus was struck with was no joke. Paul mentions he wasn't just ill. He is on his deathbed. And somehow, in some way, he came out of it, and Paul gives credit where credit is due, but God had mercy on him. And then, interestingly enough, not only on him, but also on Paul. Paul says, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Again, he's more than just the mailman. Paul would have sorrow upon sorrow at the losing of Epaphroditus. This is interesting because so far the theme we've heard over and over again is rejoice, rejoice. And whatever happens, rejoice in all circumstances. Yet if Paul was to lose Epaphroditus, he would have sorrow upon sorrow? This is the important distinction between joy and expressed happiness. We can still have a joy and rejoice in the hope of the gospel and the hope of what is to come and experience sorrow when we lose brothers and sisters, people who we're close with. In fact, it's not healthy to not experience that sorrow, to be emotionless voids that feel nothing. We should feel something. If, if we've gotten close enough with people and there's a genuine love and a genuine care and you've poured into each other's lives and there's been an impact and this is a close friendship, when we lose those people, we should feel sorrow. For Paul, it would have been like losing a brother. fellow worker, a fellow soldier. That's the result of gospel camaraderie. We need it. We need to have these relationships, but when there's loss, we will feel the sorrow. But by God's mercy, Epaphroditus was spared death, and Paul was spared that tremendous sorrow. And since things took a turn for the better, Paul is eager to send his brother back home. And it's interesting because it, um, it, it's, it's just funny the way he says it. Like, I, I need to get him back home so that you can be encouraged uh, and that I'm not just going to worry about him anymore. I'm going to be way less anxious once he's home with you. Because he, he knows Epaphroditus cares for you. We know you care for Epaphroditus. I love him, but let's get him home because I don't want to worry about him because I don't want him to die on the way. That's kind of the vibe I get from it. Sending Epaphroditus home would, would ease Epaphroditus' homesickness. 
He's longing for his church. It would give Paul the peace of mind knowing he's back, and it would give the church of Philippi a reason to rejoice, that they would have their brother home once again. And again, this is a beautiful picture of putting others' interests first. I'm sure Paul wanted to hang on to him, but he's sending him back. See, the camaraderie not only between Timothy and Paul and Epaphroditus and Paul, but between Paul and the church of Philippi. This, these relationships they extend all over. That's the gospel at work. That is the gospel at work. And that comes from having the gospel at the center of all we do. So that's going to be our last point, the last thing we look at. Example of gospel centrality. See, as Paul tells the Philippians that Epaphroditus is coming home to them, he tells them to receive him, verse 29, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. When he returns to you, embrace him. Receive him with nothing but joy. Honor him. Epaphroditus, he completed the mission that was set before him. He made it to Paul. He, he ministered to Paul. He encouraged him in this time in Rome despite his illness. And now that he's survived, that he's come back from that, he's going to make his journey home. When he gets there, <laughs> you better rejoice. What a whirlwind this guy has been through for the cause of the gospel and ministry. He should be honored. Why? Verse 30. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. He nearly died for the sake of the gospel. He risked everything in order to fulfill the task of getting to Paul. And if it began just as, I need you to deliver this to Paul, tell him we said hi, and then head on back, what started as that clearly moved into something else. He, he became an extension of the Philippian church to Paul, an encouragement in a way that the church as a whole just could not be during the time. So Paul's not like ripping into him and he says that he completed what was lacking in your service to me, though I guess in an age of passive-aggressive texting, that's what it sounds like when I read it. Like he was able to do what... <laughs> you weren't able to do. He's not saying that. He's just acknowledging like, you can't. You're over here. I'm over here. He's the extension of you and it had an impact on me. He was able to fulfill what, what you couldn't, but I know you wanted to. This idea of nearly dying, going back to this, uh, di- nearly dying to complete the work of Christ, it reminds me of, of Paul's feelings regarding the Christian life. Remember Philippians 121, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Epaphroditus pressed on in what he was called to do because the gospel was central in his life. That's what he was living for. The advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ was clearly of utmost importance to Epaphroditus. Even in the ordinary task of being a messenger, And if the gospel is central to all that we do, even in the ordinary tasks of life, we can be of great benefit to the cause of Christ. We celebrate Paul and all that he achieved, and we we should. 
But who does Paul celebrate? He celebrates Epaphroditus. He rejoices in the work of the messenger, the ordinary person doing ordinary tasks to the glory of God. He stayed the course, and he nearly died doing it. Receive him with honor. Rejoice. When the gospel is our focus, all that we do is important, no matter how ordinary, because we're doing it for Christ. We're doing it for the sake of the gospel. And to Paul, that is worthy of honor. Not, again, just as I said, not that Timothy should be worshipped, not that Epaphroditus should be worshipped, but he should be honored amongst his fellow brothers and sisters. They should rejoice and acknowledge all that he's done for the cause of the gospel in Rome. Gospel centrality, it's what cultivates a gospel care for other people. It's what creates gospel camaraderie. Why? Because when the gospel is central in all that we are and all that we do, that becomes our driving force. That becomes our motivation. See, Timothy wouldn't have been genuinely concerned for the Philippian church if the gospel wasn't central to him. Epaphroditus probably wouldn't have had all the strength to complete his task, or at least not in any way that would impact Paul and have the encouragement of Paul, if the gospel was not central. Paul would not be willing to release these two close brothers in the Lord if the gospel was not central to his life. He'd want to hold on. Now, I'd, I'd realize, as we are, are coming to a close here, this entire message sounds a little like, go be like Timothy, go be like Epaphroditus, go be like Paul. But what all these men are exemplifying and living out is this having the mind of Christ. It all comes back to Christ. And each of the men we've talked about would say the same thing. If you want to care selflessly, look to Christ. If you want to be a good friend and and comrade in the faith, look to Christ. Do you want to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Look to Christ. Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, they they all had one, one purpose in their life. To live and do all things for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. So if you're here this morning feeling like, I, I don't have a purpose. I have no purpose like that. I'm, I have no hope that would even allow me to work through the suffering like Epaphroditus did. Look to Christ. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so you could repent of your sin and believe on him and have life and have hope and have purpose and meaning. And not just eternal life in the future, but here and now. These guys were living it out presently in their lives. Citizens worthy of the gospel. Believe in Christ. Have a transformed will, a transformed purpose, and a transformed hope. I implore you, if you have not trusted him, trust him today. And for those here who have trusted Christ, who would call yourself a follower of Jesus, the question is, is the gospel at the center of your life? Does it motivate how you live and interact with others? Are the interests of Christ your interest? Or is our own interest at the forefront?
is Christ giving you a heart to truly care for others? Are we building gospel-centered relationships? Do we have people in our lives to speak gospel truth into them, spiritual mentors in the faith? Answer these questions in your mind and, and take action where action is needed. Let's allow the lives of, of these men mentioned in essentially a travel itinerary point us to Christ, that he would be the center of all that we do. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you and we praise you for these examples of gospel-centered men that you've provided for us in your word. And by your grace and your power, we would ask that we would strive to grow in gospel character, that we would be a people who continually look to Christ, his perfect, sinless life, his saving death, his glorious resurrection, and be impacted by it, that we would be changed by it. May Christ's example just propel us to love and care for others like he did. May Christ's example help us to join with other believers and that we can encourage and challenge one another. May Christ be at the center of all that we do. That the cry of our hearts would be, Jesus is my life. And it's in the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.